Welcome to the Landis Experience podcast featuring the bull bear banter. We all know that markets often behave in a way that can't easily be explained. The bull bear banter is our best effort to digest the noise of the marketplace. Thank you for joining us. Sit back, relax, and let's talk about the markets. Hello, this is Tom Guinan, and I'd like to welcome you to the September 4th episode of the Bull Bear Banter. Cheyenne Dunham is joining me today and will give us an update on the markets this week. Cheyenne? All right, Tom, our market update this week. We have December corn gaining four and a quarter cent today. That closed at 358, which is down a penny and a quarter for the week. November soybeans gained two cents today, and those finished at 968, which was up 17 and a half cents for our week on week. And finally, January beans added one and a quarter cent today. Those finished at 973 and a half, gaining 17 and a quarter cents for the week. The big story this week is the further deterioration of the U.S. corn and soybean crop. At the end of today's bull bear banter, we have a bonus segment with Dr. Charles Herberg. Charlie manages the Iowa State Grain Quality Research Lab, as well as the Iowa Grain Quality Initiative. He has some very valuable information about this year's corn crop and touches on the fact that the crop you are observing this week will be different next week. I think he brings some valuable information to anyone planning to store corn this fall. He also touches on crop insurance and his thoughts on how to achieve a fair representative sample from damaged cornfields. Beyond that, during today's discussion, we'll update crop ratings that confirm Charlie's thoughts. We hope you will stick around for his information. Finally, as many of you know, last week Landa started what we hope will become an annual event. We surveyed 278 townships across 35 counties, and we published our findings during webinars on Wednesday. We hope this will provide us a very good baseline for not only results, but the process that we use to determine those results. This info can also be found on our website. The main takeaway was the high variability of the crop from field to field in the same township. We noted wide variances in every county and across our entire territory. One note, we avoided the most severely damaged areas due to the derecho storm of three weeks ago. We also echo Charlie's thoughts as we said that we expect the actual yields in these areas to be less than what we found simply because of the ongoing dryness and drought. With that, let's move on to the bull bear factors. On our corn bull factors, crop condition scores continue to drop. Nationally, it was estimated at 62% good to excellent, which was down two points from last week, but still above last year at this time, which was 58%. Looking at Iowa, we dropped five points, down to 45% good to excellent. Nebraska lost two points, going to 64. Illinois also lost a couple, but it's still at 70% good to excellent. Minnesota is now at 79%, which is down three points, and Indiana lost another point, coming in at 63%. Most analysts have reduced their expectations for the U.S. corn crop at this point. At the beginning of August, many were thinking 180 bushels an acre, and we're now looking at numbers between 174 and 175. We wonder how much further these will be reduced in the face of ongoing dryness across the Midwest. And finally, New crop export sales were once again near the top end of expectations. Those came in at 94.1 million bushels, which was almost half of those were going to China, with another quarter of them to unknown. There are now 621 million bushels of sales on the books, compared to about 235 million at this point last year. On the bear factors for corn, export inspections dropped hard last week with only 15.8 million bushels shipped, while the previous week was 35.1 million. 
This was the lowest in 32 weeks, and it now appears that we'll be just a little short of the $1.795 billion estimate from the USDA. This is a pretty big change from just last week. We'll still see a little more added in the next week's report, as there were four days of this year not included in Monday's report. We should see everything in the September 11th WASD. U.S. ethanol production continues to bounce around in a fairly narrow range, with last week down 3 million gallons to 271 million. A year ago, that number was 298 million. However, it does look like we'll meet the USDA's projected 4.85 billion bushels of corn for ethanol and possibly exceed it just a little. Ethanol stocks continue to grow, up 20 million gallons to 877 million gallons last week, a 10-week high. And full disclosure, that number was 1 billion gallons at the end of August 2019. Gasoline demand dropped back below 9 million barrels per day to 8.876. That's kind of back in line with the average for the last six weeks. For the year, gasoline demand is off almost 14%. One private analyst released their data this week for the U.S. corn crop. IHS Market, formerly known as Informa, is expecting production of 14.961 billion bushels with a yield of 178.1 per acre. This would mean more than 1.3 billion more than last year's production. They note in their comments that the USDA does not normally adjust acres in the September report and they feel that will be the case again next week. They do expect an adjustment in the October 9th report. They will wait for that change before adjusting their acres as well. Another thing we're keeping our eye on is a long-term chart for December corn futures. It feels like $3.62 is a key resistance level. We've poked up above that level a couple of times in the last few months, but we have yet to see the market close above that level since late March. Almost every time we get close, it gets knocked back down to a level about a nickel below there. We would continue to encourage sales and offers if and when we get close to or at 360 futures on the December board. For our soybean bull factors, export inspections were strong again last week. Those came in at 29.6 million bushels. While they are down from the 42.3 million of the previous week, it's pretty strong for soybeans this time of year. It does appear that the annual estimate from the USDA of 1.65 billion bushels might be a bit low. And we'll see what next week's report says and how they adjust the WASD at the end of next week. Crop ratings continue to decrease for soybeans as well estimated at 66% good to excellent as of Sunday. And that's down another three points for this week, but still ahead of last year at this time at 55%. Iowa lost another six points coming in at 50%. Illinois dropped one point down to 72. Minnesota lost another two points, but it's still pretty high coming in at 80%. And finally, Indiana lost three points coming in at 63% good to excellent. Export sales were strong again last week, with the new crop sales totaling 64.8 million bushels, which was right at the top end of expectations. Similar to corn, a little more than half of these went to China and another 30% went to unknown. Total commitments for new crop now stand at 889 million bushels versus only 235 million at the end of last August. And finally, continued weakness in the U.S. dollar is keeping us in position to be the best value for the world markets. Until Brazil is harvesting beans, we should be able to maintain that advantage. As far as soybean bear factors, condition ratings last week at 66% are well above the 55% we saw at this time last year. Over the last decade, only two years have shown better ratings at this time of the year, 2014 and 2016. The big difference was that those were monster years for a big part of Iowa. 
The IHS Market Info, released this week, showed an estimated production of 4.323 billion bushels, using a yield of 52.1. That is 4.7 bushels better than last year. On our What to Watch For in Upcoming Events, as mentioned at the end of today's episode, we have a bonus segment with Dr. Herberg of the Grain Quality Research Lab at Iowa State. We hope you'll stick around to hear his information. Labor Day is Monday, so the Board of Trade is going to be closed until Monday night, and the holiday will also throw off the schedule of the normal government reports. So next Friday, we will see the USDA's WASDE report. And now for Tom's take. This week, we noted a few news stories about the departure of a CEO of a company touted as a market disruptor. This company will continue to try to buy farmer grain. I have long wondered how they will do that, as they own no grain elevators, they use no semi-trucks, nor do they lease or use any rail cars. They literally have no ability to handle grain. They do not employ people in your community for you to talk to. They have made no investments in your community, and they pay no property taxes. The main message they use is that they will find new markets for farmer grain. I continue to believe that the grain business is one of the most transparent businesses there is. You can literally find a bid from hundreds of grain buyers in this state. You can call their local phone number, You can drive to their facility. You can interact with their employees in your community, see them at church or on Main Street, and supporting local businesses. Like I said, I have wondered how their business model will work in this industry. I remember many of these types of businesses that popped up in the late 90s and early 2000s that were mostly web-based and promising to make things more transparent. I watched as all of them went out of business within a few years. Perhaps this company has a different recipe. Perhaps they know something I don't. My research says they've been very good at raising money, venture capital that is, but I have yet to see that they have turned a profit in over five years of business. Maybe that is what led to the change in leadership. If you are truly unhappy with the way that we or others located in the state of Iowa are doing business in the grain industry, I invite you to discuss it with us. Contact me or one of my coworkers. We love being in this state, in this industry, and in your communities. We want to earn your business each and every time we have the opportunity. Thank you for listening. Welcome, Charlie. Good to have you back on the uh, podcast with us. Well, thank you, Tom. And and I enjoy reading those podcasts, too. So thank you. Well, it's great to have you here. Uh, I will make a mention that uh, Charlie is actually Dr. Charles Herberg with the Iowa State University and uh, works with the Grain Quality Lab. And we've asked him, just talk to us. What issues are you seeing right now in terms of not only the derecho, but the drought? We kind of drew the favored straw, I guess, uh, this year because we had both problems occurring to some extent with an overlap in the area and, and to some extent not. With the drought, and this year's drought was quite similar to the one in 2012, for those that remember uh, back then, the coverage and the intensity was similar. In drought situations like that, we usually, in addition to lost yield, we usually are concerned with aflatoxin uh, because that's the that can be formed at the end of a, of a growing season where there was a lot of heat stress and, and then early death and, and drying down through the 30 down to 18% down in that area with stress, we use a concern with, with that. Uh, typically, the, the, in, in drought conditions, the test weight is okay. The, the uh, feed value with protein is probably okay. The plants die, they have some time to die anyway. They don't die instantly, so they mature out okay. But it's mostly the, the aflatoxin issue that is troublesome on a quality 
uh, side. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but just talk a little bit about aflatoxin. You and I both dealt with this in our careers, but what is specifically the problem with aflatoxin? What does it do that's so horrendous? Good question. Thank you for stopping me and, and, and asking me because that, that, that question comes up often. Aflatoxin is a metabolite. There's a byproduct of a particular fungus, Aspergillus flavus, that grows on corn in specific situations, when there's specific stress situations. The key things are, one, you have some heat stress at pollination and silk. We did. Then you have continued drought stress through the grain fill period. We did. And then typically the, the, the most the final thing that's needed is that during the dry down, a little bit of rain to slow the pace of dry down slightly from 30 down to 18. Those combinations typically encourage the fungus to grow and then the toxin to produce or the fungus to produce toxin. The trouble with aflatoxin is that that well for humans, it's a very potent carcinogen parts per billion levels. That, that's really, really small. In, in livestock, it usually does liver and kidney damage before cancer, but, uh, but it's a very potent toxic agent to both livestock and people. More or less levels, cattle's the most tolerant, fat hogs next, then sows and chickens next, and dairy none because it passes into the milk. So it's it's something that we really don't want to have in the grain. It's difficult to manage. I would also add that the test, because parts per billion is really, really small. 20 parts per billion, which is the typical general standard, that's the equivalent weight of about seven kernels of corn in a rail car. So uh, it's just not very much. Well, you can imagine trying to chase a, a, an amount like that around in a sampling program. So that's what it, the combination of it's toxic and hard to detect is what causes the issues in the grain trade. Right. And I've said in the past, it's nothing that anybody wants to deal with. And it's very frustrating for everybody because as a farmer, you can't see it. You can't smell it. You can't test right. for it yourself. You have to take it to somebody else and they're going to tell you how bad it is. Right. And you just have to trust them. It's it's just not a good combination for anybody. But yet it's so deadly. When I used to work in a in a different career, I dealt with a lot of pet food ingredients. And boy, yeah, it's a big a dog deal there. Just yeah, real that's quick. a big deal there. Yeah. Um, so, and not only that, you take it to another person, and if you have a different sample, you may have a radically different answer. Makes it very frustrating. Okay, so we'll we'll go on to the next issue. So, what else are you seeing out there in the fields that concerns you this year? Well, then on August 10th, why then we had a 75 mile wide strip, 200 and some miles long, that basically got anywhere from 60 mile an hour winds on the western end to 120 plus mile an hour winds on the east central and eastern uh, end. That rolled a lot of crop, uh, no doubt. On the west end, it's not quite so serious. That is, the, the amount of rolled crop is is probably not quite so serious, uh, although the the ones that the, the droughted areas where it overlapped, um, stock strength wasn't that great, and so there's a little bit more problem there than there would be uh, if if we had a if we had totally healthy stocks. The the grain that was rolled 
knocked down. Basically, it was either flattened, and in that most of those cases, the stalks broke at the ground, which means it was killed instantly, effectively. It was killed. That didn't allow for it to dry down at all normally or mature at all normally. It stopped right there. That meant we had soft kernels. It was mm, just about ready to start denting, maybe so dough in that area. It won't get any, it's not going to mature out much more. It will just be that soft, light mass, basically, because it died right there. It also won't dry very well because the soft kernels give up moisture less. I mean, it's hard to get moisture out of them. So we will find that, that those kernels will, will take longer uh, in dryers. Effect, low, low test weights. Test weights like you probably haven't seen since well, the last time I can remember test weights this low. I'm dating myself a little bit. But 1993, when we had those huge floods, there was a lot of that because we had an early frost on top of it. And this damage by the storm is somewhat, bears a lot of parallels to early frost. Sure. that just kills it right there on the spot. Some of it was just, if it wasn't killed, then the next class of, of damage was the roots were all tangled up and it's leaning down. It's not going to come up or anything like that, but it didn't at least get knocked down. Impact there probably will mature out some. If, it, if there are green leaves and it didn't get broken at the bottom, it will mature out some, but not very much. 45 pounds, 50 to 45 pounds test weight, something like that. And then in the where the wind was a little less, a lot of lean corn, which probably won't come back up. It's probably lost yield, may have lost some on test weight, but at least it's in the range where we can kind of say, yeah, it's probably okay corn once it, get, once it gets harvested. So it's that range of premature death that the storm caused, plus it laid it on the ground. And of course, if it's laying on the ground, it's not going to give us air in it. So that means mold and very slow dry down. It will mold in the field. And as soon as that happens, then we're back in the toxin business again of one sort or another. It may not be aflatoxin, it might be humonosin or one of the others, but, but nonetheless, we're back talking about, uh, about toxins again. The longer it lays, the more difficult, the, the, you know, the more likely it is for mold and other types of damage like that to occur. At the same time, it's probably too wet to harvest right now. I mean, it's still, it'll take a little time to get sure. it. Uh, 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 to get it dried down, but and and therein then lies the lies the challenge of the crop insurance. With right, the, and that was going to be my next question. I know you and I have uh, exchanged some emails, and you've, you and I have talked a little bit before this recording. But tell me what you're hearing out there, because we're hearing a lot of different versions. I'll say of what's required for the farmer that's had a a loss. Talk about that guy that has got a, a zero in that field. What does he have to do to collect crop insurance? There's two aspects of, to the crop insurance loss. One is is just pounds, weight, amount. And that is pretty straightforward. I mean, if you, if you have corn in a wagon or corn in a bin or whatever, it can be measured and it's pretty straightforward. Weight can be settled after harvest or before it can be done. Quality, on the other hand, must be settled before it goes to storage of some sort. Uh, it has to be settled either in the field or 
right out of it in a wagon or something like that. And it makes it a little bit more of a challenge for the, for the adjuster. And yes, there have been a lot of different stories and, and, and techniques applied by the adjusters. There are guidelines for how quality should be adjusted. And it is it basically computes, in its most simplistic sense, a value of the product, or a discount, I should say, is determined, and then it's converted to an equivalent number of bushels. So that at the end, the claim on the bottom says you have 100 bushels, even though you may have lost 50 bushels to quality, you, you get an equivalent number of bushels. That's because the farm program requires weight, and, and it works on weight. So uh, the issue comes in determining what the quality is, when it's settled, and how it's settled. And I've heard all kinds of things, all the way from an estimate, and everybody agreed, to no, you have to you have to harvest it and take it to the elevator, or I have to harvest a small sample and take it to the elevator and find out if it's okay, and then I'll come back and figure your quality adjustment. Those that creates some problems when you have the, those differences in methodology that creates some problems. I guess I'll stick my neck out here, but there's the best way is to take representative strips. This is part of the RMA process. Take representative strips. And the adjuster and the and the uh, farmer agree that if we run the combine back and forth on these re representative strips, we'll get a representative sample of the field. We agree that. Then a large sample. Then take the sample in, and I think personally the best place to take the sample is a is a federal grading place because you get everybody's out of it. You know, anybody is is that has any interest uh, in this is 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 out of it and and at that point then with that grade and this pail of grain plus it represents whatever the adjuster and the farmer agreed to then you can start talking about the quality adjustments i've heard of situations where the producer was crowded into signing off before the sample was graded and then all of a sudden it came back well isn't that good and so then you you know then you have a disconnect there and the there's no no doubt. Everybody that has had either one of these perils, they're into the crop insurance. I mean, they're into the they're 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 going to file a claim. I mean, I don't think there's any doubt Absolutely. about that. Sure. And so that makes the corn laying on the ground that can't be harvested more valuable than anything that was taken out of the field because it's worth three eighty eight on the ground and it and it's worth whatever in the field. So that's why I champion the concept of. Of, of some agreement on a representative sampling and then an independent test on the quality, then we all can decide, will you take it or won't you take it or, or whatever. The adjusters often uh, will bring ears into an elevator and say, here's half a dozen ears or a dozen ears or whatever, what would, what would this take? What would, what would the discount be? Well, you don't know. You don't know where those ears came from. It isn't, you know. And my my suggested answer in that situation is, I don't buy your corn. I buy right. corn in trucks. And so, uh, and so, let's come back with a sample that represents something that that is real. This would be an issue all the way through the year until it's over. But one of the key points: can't put it in a bin. 
and expect to settle the quality later. That has to be done at the time of harvest. Let's talk a little bit about that for for that quality of grain that will be harvested. I mean, you you talked about this. There's some grain that is still standing. It's leaning. It's yeah. not on the ground. What do you, would your suggestion be to somebody that has some low quality grain, whether it's well, low test weight, high damage, high foreign material? What's your best advice to those folks? Well, do the drill of taking some strips. This is assuming now that it's dried down to some something decent that the, uh, the combine can get it. Uh, right. But take the strips and get a, a large sample, five-gallon bucket sample, and, and do the testing process. At that point, you'll be able, everyone theoretically, should be able to determine whether the quality is down and maybe subject to some discount, but still manageable in general commerce because obviously if you get it it's going in with other grain at some point it's going to have to be mer- have to be merchandised as other grain so is it okay enough that it can go into general commerce or does it have to be either zeroed out or directed to a specific use for example if if the farmer has cattle or the neighbor is a feed yard. There's some ways to work that out. You could even work out in some cases, I'm sure, if there was if the bin structure was configured so to collect a bunch for a cattle feeder just for that specific use, not put it into the general stream. If the test results come back and they're below the acceptance criteria that the grain dealer has set for the year, then it becomes zero value. The adjuster is not in that decision. That is yours. Uh, That the accept, reject, and or discount amount, that is your decision. And yes, the adjuster can take the pail to two or three places, and I probably will. Uh, That's part of the game, I guess. But the point is that the grain market has the privilege of setting the acceptability and the value as bulk grain. And it may be able to facilitate some special marketing things, obviously for price, I mean, but but still, it may be able to facilitate some special marketing, and that would be good too. If you can't, then it becomes zero and the farmer gets zeroed out. Even if there was corn in the field, if there's no value, the RMA process allows for that. It says, that's the ZMV, zero market value, if there's no buyer. So if I have some that's not necessarily that bad, but like I said, maybe it's low test weight. Talk a little bit about low test weight in a grain bin. What What's a cutoff where you don't want to do that? Is there something that you can do? Is there a rule of thumb? Is there something we should be looking at? The test weight is the biggest, best single indicator of storage quality, of storage ability. As an example, in 2000, I guess 2009, we had, that, we had a very wet harvest and it was somewhat immature, test weights were about 52 or so, somewhere in that area. That cut the storage time in half. The allowable storage time, moisture, temperature rules, cut it in half. It And, and I'm sure that continues progressively down to a lower level. If, if I had test weights below 50, I don't think I would try to put it as a random mix with other grain because it's going to cause hot spots. If it, if it 
it probably can be marketed and it probably will be okay, although a lot of processor users would cringe at that statement. It becomes mostly an animal feed use at that point. Ethanol wouldn't want it. Dry milling wouldn't want it. Wet milling wouldn't want it. But for animal feed, particularly for large animals, chickens maybe not, they eat by volume, but uh, then I would store it separately. Uh, that is, I would try to isolate the the grain. If it was below 50, I'd try to isolate it. And and as you as I said before, we're kind of been jawing around the idea of below 48. If you don't have a specialty market for it, don't try. Uh, don't try to, to keep it because it'll spoil very fast. That's really helpful, Charlie. I really appreciate that. So just kind of in closing, any final advice for the farmers that are going through this, whether it's on the ground or leaning, um, anybody that's suffered through this drought, what what's your you know kind of rule of thumb, maybe or your your specific advice to them as we head into harvest? All parties have to be willing to have a calm and rational communication. That sometimes gets in the way as much as anything, and uh, that and all parties here are the grain dealer, the adjuster, and the farmer. So that nobody may or the farmer may not like the end result but at least it was gotten in a fair and square way and and according to the processes and so forth it's just like if you if you hold your grain too long and the market goes down well you may not like the price but nonetheless there's a market for it and so um, that's one of the big things two is just recognize that grain handling is not going to be easy this low test weight grain will go out of condition in storage more easily. It will take more energy to dry it because it'll hang on to the moisture uh, uh, more and it will break up. And that, that applies to the elevator as well. We're going to have a lot of dusty fines out of this. That's a safety issue. I don't have to go through, you know, we had an example of what was it, two weeks ago in Royal as an example of what can happen. This will be a year to be on your guard for safety issues. And the other thing I think I heard you say was, you know, every week it, the the quality just deteriorates a little more too. It's not static. It's it's getting that, worse. That, that's right, and that is right. And you you make a an important point in terms of the timing of making an assessment of what the quality is and actually harvesting it. Because if you make an assessment this week and leave some strips and then come back next week to do some work, it's not going to be the same. Uh, it, it's going to have deteriorated some. This past week with all that heat certainly was not a bargain for us. Well, as always, Charlie, we appreciate you joining us uh, and sharing your wisdom and your knowledge. And uh, uh, appreciate what you're doing for the state of Iowa and just giving us some good, uh, solid advice and information that we can uh, use to do the best job we can out there. So thanks again for your time. Well, we'll be tracking this through the year, and I'm sure there'll be an update or two uh, before that, before it's all said and done. So, And like I said, we appreciate you joining us, and we look forward to talking to you again in the future. Bet. Glad to do it. That's all we have for you today. We appreciate you joining us for the Bull Bear Banter. If you'd like to contact us, you can send a tweet to at Landis Co-op or drop an email to podcast at LandisCooperative.com. Our tagline is bears make money, bulls make money, and pigs just go to market. If you have any questions regarding grain marketing decisions, please reach out to your area grain marketing advisor. We want to thank you for listening, and we'll be back with you again next week. <music>